Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Mita Malik, Head of Equity, Inclusion, and Impact at Carta. Mita is a corporate change maker and gives innovative ideas a voice and serves customers and communities with a purpose. She has had an extensive career as a marketer in the beauty and consumer product goods space, being a fierce advocate of including and representing brown and black communities. Her passion for inclusive storytelling led her to become Chief Diversity Officer to build end-to-end inclusion ecosystems across big and small organizations. She'd worked with a ton of companies you'd recognize like Unilever, Pfizer, Avon, J&J, and more. And she also hosts the popular LinkedIn Network podcast, The Brown Table Talk, and has her first book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, coming out in October of 2023. Awesome. And there's a lot to pick Mita's brain on the show today. So let's get to it. Mita, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Adam, I'm so delighted. What an honor. And I know we have so many friends in common. So thank you for having me here today. It, it's a pleasure. I, it's, it's, all about, it's all about collaboration. It's all about amplifying the good folks in the world. And, th- and that's really what, what oh. I do on my show. My, my canvas is here to share and I'm, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's dig in. And, you know, from, from your background and listening to you speak, I've gathered, it's, it's interesting because you've been in the CPG space. You understand the art of storytelling. How do you take a yeah. physical product and you, and you bring it to life as a story? What was it like when, when you were a kid? Were you, were you a storyteller as a child? Well, my background, it starts with I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised in the U.S. right outside of Boston. And Adam, I grew up in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. I was Especially the funny Boston. Looking. No offense yes, to Boston, but that's a Boston. Pretty, known to be a pretty racist ass <laughs> yeah. city. Sorry, sorry, my fellow Bostonians. Let's well, call it how it is. You all know it. Like, no, one's, no one's hiding it. Right. Our outside of Boston. So not Boston, but our outside of Boston. And I was the funny looking dark skinned girl, had a long, funny looking braid. Parents spoke funny English. Brought a funny smelling lunch to school and it wasn't funny anymore. I was bullied a lot by my peers. Yeah, a lot by my peers growing up, both verbally and physically. And it was really difficult. I just didn't ever felt like I belonged to my community. There was a point when you said funny isn't funny anymore. Was there that tipping point? Yeah, it is. Because I think when we start thinking about people as being strange, weird, different, funny, odd, we start to stereotype, right? And that becomes the gateway to hate. Anyone who has little people in their life, you know, just think about the words oh, yeah. you use. And, you know, for me, this work really started. For me, this work really started when I think about some of the things that I experienced growing up, uh, particularly when I was a freshman in high school and I was taking a class that I really liked called Intro to Physical Science. 
And there was one uh, white boy who had been bullying me for some time. My hair was down to my knees, by the way, then Adam right. in a braid. And he would like hold my head back when I passed papers back if I didn't pass them fast enough. He would find me in the hallway and go, nay, and like take my braid and like whip it. But it, the kids are so mean. And it was one day that he decided during that lab portion of the class to set my hair on fire. Oh, my God. And he was with a, a friend and they were lighting matches and throwing them into my braid. And my lab partner, who had never talked to me for the entire eight weeks, said to me, oh, my God, your hair is on fire. And, you know, Adam, in that moment, what I realized was, you know, the hair damage was done. And I still have my hair today. But the damage that happens psychologically when you go through something like that. And I'll tell you, the one person who showed up for me that day was the guidance counselor. And this is where I really talk about we're all an ally for everybody, right? He showed up and he said to me, I'm going to have you join the cross-country and track team. I'm not very socially coordinated, can't dance, can't, not good at sports where there's a lot of coordination, but I run really fast. And so he recognized that in me. And there's nothing like sports to be an equalizer, right? All of a sudden, Absolutely. I was in the field. But what I go back to that story, you know, yeah, I can go back and Google those bullies. And I do sometimes. And what are they doing now in their life? And I actually, you know what? I blame the parents, the teachers, law enforcement, the community, the whole system that allows these things to happen. And that's actually what happens in our workplaces every day. Like, Absolutely. not enough of us are standing up for each other. It's, it's, it comes down to, to, Speaking up, I mean, you, you really hit the nail on the head and, and I go back to it too. I mean, everyone's experienced bullying. I experienced bullying in, in high school. Kids are experiencing mm -hmm. bullying. I have, I have yes. two young kids and we talk about it all the time. Even when my uh, almost 11 year old, they, they talk about like teasing each other and stuff. Like I'm like, Nina, I'm like, just be mindful of how the other yes. person's going to feel. And she has empathy and she doesn't. I'm not saying she's a bully in any way, but it starts at home and it starts does. with the parents and it starts with the language that you use because that's those kids grow up. The kids that are bullies then grow up to be bullies now. Not all of them. Yes. I, I believe that most people change. And, and listen, kids are mean. Kids are mean. Kids are mean. Kids are assholes. Like kids are, kids are mean. And like bad things happen in that, but that really affects who you are now. It does. And if you look back on it and you think about the work that you're doing to, to change how people um, just interact and, and live and work with each other. So, before we before we jump too far ahead to the work that you're doing now, like let's go back to the childhood. Talk about that track and field. Talk about how did that help you open up socially to kids that didn't look like you and relate and be bit. able to communicate. It did a bit. I, all of a sudden, I gained so much respect because I could run really fast, really fast. And my coach would always joke, "If you just cut your hair, you'd run even faster." Because I had a lot of hair. You were an aerodynamic. Yeah, but but I did run really fast, and it did. It was interesting. Because all of a sudden, I was creating more relationships on the field and as we were running. And they saw me in a different way because they got exactly. to know me in a different way. And so that's why, again, I'm not a huge sports person. Personally, that's my husband. But I do think sports is a great equalizer. Any sort of team activity where people can bond and get to know each other in a different way, that's so important. So when you were growing up, were there, were there role models that you looked up to? I really looked up to both my parents. My dad came from a family of 10. My mom came from a family of nine. They were the only ones to immigrate from India. They knew nobody here. And none of their siblings uh, to this day have ever, have ever moved to the U.S. And they risked a lot to come here. I mean, my dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old. That's my 
grandmother and my mom's mother was married when she was um, 10 years old. And so they went on to have very large families and they were remarkable women. And when we think about progress in particularly gender equity, I'm living proof it can happen in less than three generations. That was not too long ago. And child marriage is still happening across the, the world. And so I really think about that. Like that sits heavy on me. Do you mind me asking what socioeconomic class your parents were when they emigrated here? I think that has a lot of context to it, too. Were they, were they well off? Were they middle class? They were not. Class? My father was um, a mechanical engineer. He was extremely educated in India. But when he moved here, he lived at the YMCA in Manhattan. He took on janitorial jobs. He, he, always ta- he used to tell us a story. He and his friend could afford a pint of fried rice a day. And they would split it. That's all he could afford. He ended up Same. becoming an executive of a Fortune uh, you know, 500 company. It's pretty incredible. But they really bootstrapped and did everything they could on their own when they arrived. That immigrant work ethic is so inspiring. My my wife's father and mother immigrated here from from former Soviet Republic. They mm-hmm. they came over here and he's he started same thing, plumbing, janitorial, mm-hmm. and now yep. super accomplished. Amazing. And it just goes to show you, and that's inspiring for me. You know, I look up to my wife's dad as, as a role yeah. model. I certainly look up to my parents as well, the New York City Board of Education teachers who did everything for their children. Wow. And, and I think that really lays the groundwork. So um, let's 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 move the needle forward. You get into the CPG world and you get into yeah. big brands. Is that something you always wanted to do? Because it's always funny. Like people are like, yeah, of course I want to work for J&J on you know, Q-tips, right? It's like <laughs> whoever Johnson. dreams of that, right? I want to market yeah. Q-tips to the world, right? Everyone needs their ears cleaned in random craft projects. Yeah. Well, I was always passionate about storytelling. And if you now know my journey, I wasn't, I'm an introvert, but I also was painfully shy. I think those two things are different. And because of my life experience and circumstance, I love to spend time alone because honestly, no one would spend time with me other than my brother and parents. And so I, I was reading a lot. I was writing a lot. And I didn't grow up in an Instagram era, Adam. So I didn't see products and services and people who looked like me. So I was wondered, like, who gets to write stories about who? Like, who has the pen? Like, why don't I see people like me included? And so that really led me into, at the time when I graduated from Duke with my business, with my MBA in business, it was really trying to get an amazing foundation in marketing. And there's nothing like big consumer product goods companies, I think, to this day. You get to learn. Oh my, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I had I, I had my stint there before before recruiting. I've worked at the American Expresses of the world on the agency oh, yes, side. Yeah. I worked with big, <laughs> big brand, uh, big brand and big box clients, and you, you get a ton of learning there. But I want to go back to that key point around lack of representation. Yes. And I'm and I'm and I'm threading the needle through your story of lack of representation, not having a voice, leading up to kind of where you are now. And when you were working at and J and J and these other big companies, when you looked around the room, even in the boardroom, did you see the representation? Did you see other folks that, that look like you? No, I didn't. I did not. A few here and there. I actually, Adam, went through this exercise with my friend D. We do our Brown Table Talk podcast together, my co-host. I literally plug away. <laughs> went back through. Yeah, I'll plug away. We had this conversation in the podcast, but I went, oh, I went through my head and I wrote down all the managers I've ever had, which at my point in my career, there's been a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've only, only had one manager who was a person of color who's a woman of color. Mostly my entire career have reported into white men. And I'm like, that can't be, can it? Like can it be? And so that's really interesting. I think when I was growing up in marketing, I am a half glass full person. I know things are changing. I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me in management at all. 
It's so interesting you say that because now my wheels are spinning and I've had majority, I would say 90% before I went out on my own, um, before I went into recruiting, I'm talking about when I, my 15 years in marketing were female. Oh, interesting. And I work yeah. better with, I work better with female, uh, we'll call them bosses, leadership, we'll call them female leadership. It was just relatable. And there was, there was actually a really nice mix of diversity um, within that. And I think that that really helped me and having my, um, mm -hmm. how am I going to call it? my my I'm not empathy, my allyship meter, we'll call it from that. And I think I that's that. really what my allyship meter led to that. Yeah. Um, but what about brands themselves? Let's talk about that for a moment there too. Uh, how did you influence the conversation, the dialogue, the narrative, as far as how certain products were marketed and advertised to be more uh, equitable and not just going after, I you mean, know, yeah, I've been fighting for it my entire life. I can remember creating like eyeshadows and blushes and I'm like, this doesn't work on my skin tone. Like, yeah, this okay. is so interesting to me that I'm spending all this time. And then I'd have conversations with managers who'd say, oh, well, that's going to cost more money if we add more pigment. Mm, and I said, well, or, or there's no there's no audience for that. And I said, well, how do you know? Have you ever tried talking to that audience? And I think Fenty, you know, Rihanna sort of blew that out of the water. Oh, I know yeah. many other brands are doing that. But it's like, there is a you've never spoken to them. So how yeah. do you know if they're willing to buy from you? You've never spoken to them. and so. I think whenever I could, whether it was something we were doing in social media or it was the, the brief for the campaign, or even if you're thinking about including employees, like just think about representation throughout the end-to-end -end inclusion ecosystem behind the camera, in front of the camera. Who's doing the makeup on set? Who are the influencers? Mm -hmm. You know what I love, Adam, when you know, agencies would come in, you probably remember this, and present the mood board, oh, right? Yeah. The mood board and like concept boards. And every single person on that mood board is white. Always. And they'd say, well, that's a mood board. That's a mood board. And I said, yeah, but that's where we start to create ideas of what this campaign is going to look like. Mood boards, concept boards, they matter so much. Like all of those little steps matter. And, I, and I'm not saying that we're going to change the system right away. But of imagine if you changed one thing, one thing in the tipping point, you change another thing, and then you start to see progress. And, and, and just to play devil's advocate, I, I mean, I kind of laugh sometimes because we, we, we know the inside baseball, right? We, we know how the sausage is made, right? When right. you see ads and you could tell that it's forced. Yes. Right. Like you could, you could tell that it's a for, like maybe it's casting, maybe it's a writing of the, of the ad or the marketing and they're trying too hard. Like you give them credit for trying, obviously, but where does it start? I mean, you, you mentioned starting in the mood boards. I, I mean, I personally think it starts with with the folks on the team, with hiring does, with, with diversity. And when I say diversity, it's not just your skin color. And it's not just your sexual orientation or your gender, but it's diversity of mindset, diversity of values. And we get, and we get out of this mode of, you know, yes, men and yes, women and everyone saying the same. Yes. That's what it's all about. And it, that's why it comes down to hiring. And that's one of the reasons I got into recruiting so I could work with companies and bring diversity of mindset. So, for yeah. example, and I'm taking a left turn here. My least favorite, and it's like a thorn in my side, I hate it, it's the worst, is I hate the expression culture fit. I despise oh, yes. it, I hate everything about it. What is, when I say the word culture fit to you, Mita, what's your, what's your reaction, what's your hot take? Ugh. <laughs> and there's a, there's a sound clip, everybody. There we go, let's clip Ugh. it, editors. There we go, I want that as our social media clip, and that's yeah, what we're gonna put we go. out to LinkedIn. Now, Mita Malik's reaction to the word culture fit. <laughs> because, it, because what is it? It's like, Okay, would I want to have a beer or a glass of wine with glass of wine with Mita? Would I want well, you're assuming Mita to drinks. come over to my home? Yeah. Could I s imagine traveling with Mita? Another strange one I get is like, would I trust Mita friends. to? Would I trust Mita to 
watch my children. I'm like, what does this have to do with the job and the expertise? So it's all the coded language of like, mm-hmm. you know, here it is. I like me. I like people who look like me, act like me, think like me. It's human nature. And so we have to think about how we can break that bias and right. start thinking about like, like you do every day with clients. It's like, here's the job. Here's the spec. What's the expertise you need? And what are you looking for in this person that will allow them to grow in this role? Like, what are the skills they need and the skills they can grow into? Well, that's why I always like, you know, companies that there's very few that do it, that do the blind resumes where they take the Mm. name out and they take the the location if it's fully remote because you're taking out the bias of it. And I've shared this story before when I when I early my early, early days when I started recruiting, there was a company that came in and they did an electronic survey based on your sourcing to see if you had any biases. And, And I talk about this very openly. I had a slight bias against certain names that, that were unrecognizable to mm. me, that looked foreign mm. to me. And it wasn't because I'm a racist. It wasn't because any of that. It was just a bias that we all, listen, we all have biases. I don't care do. who you are in the world. It's the way yes. you're brought up. We all have biases against something, someone. It's just human in nature. None of us are like 100% sunshine and rainbows that yeah. we love everybody. Let's yeah. be straight up honest. That's bullshit. We all have it, right? It's the way we brought up. But if you're in a hiring role in any way, if you could recognize your biases, that's the first step is recognizing what your biases are so you can be conscious of them. Now, did it change 100%? I can't say yes or no, but had it made a drastic improvement in the way that I source? Yeah, self-awareness. You hit the nail on the head. It all comes down to to self-awareness. So in your work that you're doing, and we'll kind of circle back on that a little bit, how, how do you have those type of conversations with leadership about self-awareness. How do you get people to look in the mirror and, and, and say, hey, listen, let's look at myself first because I'm the leader of this organization. Yeah. Change starts with me. So that's one of the things, sort of the reasons I wrote the book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Let's get into workplace. it. And one of the myths is I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good, right? And how many times have I heard leaders quietly say that? And so the question you have to ask yourself, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is I had a leader who came to me who said, you know, we're really trying hard to attract black talent. It's just not working. I said, well, tell me more. Well, we worked with a historical black college and university and we created an internship program and none of them were a culture fit. I said, well, how many? Three. Three black interns that were not going to work with the program again. And so then I asked leaders, I said, okay, so let's pick a university. Let's pick Duke because I went there. Would we ever say that we had three white interns from Duke and they weren't a culture fit and would never go back to Duke? And so what I do is to ask leaders to self-reflect, right, on some of the language they're using. And, you know, one of the things I also talk about in relation to talent is, you know, gendered ageism. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about that enough. A woman never seems to be the right age at work. It's either you're too young or too old. And so what I will do... Right. And there's all, all of the pregnancy things. bias is the worst. That's my absolutely. And so you ask, you know, questions I might ask you, Adam, if you interviewed, let's say Sally and you said, oh, Sally just doesn't have the energy to keep up here. Like, she, you know, she, she worked at such and such company for 30 years. Like that's coded language. For, and you're like, OK, so Adam, tell me more. Tell me what we talk about. Facts versus feelings. Tell me more about what you mean by energy. What did she display in the interview? What did you see on her resume that led you to believe that? Same thing. I don't know if Mina would have the professional maturity. I'm not sure if I would put her in front of clients. Okay, so tell me more, Adam. What did you experience in the interview? And I know I'm talking to someone who has great expertise in this, but I always coach leaders like ask 
if I'm working with leaders, ask open-ended questions. I'm not in the business of shaming, naming, blaming. That doesn't work. That shuts down conversation. But tell me more. Okay, so why do you think? Why do you think that? This is where we need to start. This is where leadership needs to start is to be able to have those open and honest conversations. And it comes down to representation. It comes down to your sourcing tactics. Yes. It comes down to equity. Does everybody that you're sourcing on the same spot, do they all have access to it? If you're only sourcing, let's just say from LinkedIn, does everyone have access to LinkedIn? Absolutely. Is someone able to afford and pay for a premium feature that's putting their profile, you know, first and, and foremost? Mm-hmm. Yes. Those are the places that you have to look. And when, when I think about, it's crazy too. I, I think about all these things you just spoke about, ageism. And not that, I feel ageism personally in, in, a, in a different way. And I'm like, Am I aging myself out? I'm, I just turned 44, just to give some reference here. And I'm saying, am I keeping up? Am I able to be in these conversations with technology and, and the roles oh, that I'm recruiting on? Mm-hmm. Right. And I start to think about it too. And I have an interesting, I'm a, I'm a white suburban middle-class dude. I got it. I have it made in the shade here. But then the other question that I always ask, because a lot of, a lot of recruiters, a lot of hiring managers come to me and it's always like, Hey, Adam, on the side, they're like, we need a diversity hire. It's like source mm-hmm. everybody, but we need a diversity hire. And then I always ask this question. If you have a person of color and a white man or a white woman and the white man or white woman is actually better for the job, who are you going to hire? And that's always a stumper question because they want to make a diversity hire. It's like, do I make a diversity hire? Like, what do you do? I mean, that's what do you do if the other person who is not a diversity hire is better? And I hate that language diversity hire. And, and they I, say that to it, me. That's the language. It's terrible because, you know, I would never want to be known as a diversity hire. I've earned it's this. It's almost like a, like a token, speed. like, a, you know, I hate to use the, yeah. the expression, like a token yeah. hire, which is a derogative, right. terrible term. Absolutely. And it's always our, our goal is to change the composition of our team. And so to your point, you have to source enough candidates. There's something, Adam, I'm sure you've seen the study from Harvard Business Review. It's called the two and pool effect. Having one person from an underrepresented group, historically marginalized group on a slate isn't enough. In fact, if I'm the only one, you're actually sort of othering me. I become the different one. But if you have two individuals from a historically marginalized community, the odds that one of them will get hired is is 78% actually more likely. It comes down to sourcing. Sourcing, exactly what you do and what you said. Yeah. Hey there, fellow podcast listeners. I'm Kevin Logan Jr., host of the Immutable Mindset Podcast. If you're fascinated by Web3, blockchain, and disruptive technology, then you won't want to miss a show. Join me and co-host Adam Posner as we introduce you to an incredible lineup of successful entrepreneurs, builders, and industry veterans who share their insider knowledge, unique perspectives, and personal stories that will leave you inspired and craving more. Like Mike Isogawa, the CEO of Webacy, who shares her journey from being a Cirque du Soleil performer to a cybersecurity pioneer. Or Dave Schwed, COO of Halborn, who discusses the future of digital asset security and how the future of assets will be tokenized. We also break down complex topics into digestible bits, perfect for both experts and newcomers to the world of Web3. So if you're ready to stay ahead of the curve, subscribe to the Immutable Mindset Podcast now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So when did you make the shift in your career from being on the marketing side to really going into, like, again, the thread goes back to you being a champion for DEI and B throughout your life, when did you make the professional shift into doing this full-time? I made the professional shift when I was at Unilever and our then CEO came to me three times, one, two, three, and asked me to be, take on and become the chief diversity officer. So they came to you? They came to me and I said no. No, I said no every time. Why? 
because I was going to be a marketer. I was going to run Baby Dove or Lipton. I had my own bias. Your mind was set on that. You were going to be a senior, a senior what, marketing what is, manager, director, yeah. VP, work your way up. You were leading that brand. That was your career trajectory. Exactly. But this exactly. leader kept coming up to you. What did that? And let me ask you this. What was that leader's background? That leader was... Uh, Male, female, was, black, uh, white, he was brown. A, he was a white man. And he what had you, grown up at Unilever most of his career. He's no longer there. But he had kept coming back to me. And I had other people, not just him, but other people in the business who said, this is so really people good People were for chirping. You. And they I saw said, this passion. You, know, you had your blinders yeah. on, but people saw what you yeah. were passionate about. And they're like, Mita, like, maybe you should follow this passion, right? And sometimes I always say, sometimes people see something in you you don't see in yourself yet. Mm-hmm. And it was my younger brother who said to me, everything you've gone through, imagine if you could do this change in organizations. Like, why wouldn't you do this job? And sometimes younger brothers are mm-hmm. right. Most of the times, actually. Don't tell him I said that. Let's let's talk let's talk about the pivot. Let's talk about that decision because I I love talking about the pivot. Was it was it over the course of time? Was it a conversations, lots of conversations with your husband and your people close to you, or was it, was it like probably, you know what? Screw this! Yeah. I'm going I'm going for it. This is my calling. Let's make that move. Let's talk about the actual decision three of the months, pivot. Within three mm-hmm. months, I actually had just had my daughter as well. Uh, she just turned eight, but she was at the time I had just come back from leave. I mean, it was around the time when she was nine months. And so I decided, I'm going to go for it. We're going to do this. I also had had a recent experience where I had signed a really big celebrity to work on a brand. And I was in a room, Adam, back to diversity representation. Here I am leading the room. The celebrity is a person of color. And there's not one other person of color in this room of 25 working on this except for me. And that sort of hit me. And I said, wow. Did the celebrity recognize that? The celebrity did not actually know because they weren't in the rooms, but I quickly oh. ended up working and changing it. But I did it on my own. And I thought, well, what if I could do other people help this at scale? And so that was a really big pivotal moment for me as well. The pivot. And, and I think it's a really important part. I, I, I need to talk about start talking about it a little bit more on this show because that's like kind of the roots of it. I love talking about the pivot. And I really believe that there's seasons of our career. There's yeah. seasons, right? And, you know, I talk about my first 15 years before I pivoted into recruiting. And then I had my season when I was an agency recruiter. And then mm-hmm. I'm in my season yeah. now where I am a, a, a founder and I work for myself. Everybody has their seasons. And, and I truly believe that it, when, when the universe works right and you manifest that things align for the, for the right reasons I and you're that. in that place, because Mita, you're in a place now where you can make the most impact and you're bringing, you know, it's not like you came right out of school and you worked in DIB. You had years of Fortune 500, 100 companies yeah. experience where you saw the rights and the wrongs within organizations where it gave you that expertise and the ability to say, based on my experience, based on my expertise, Absolutely. this is what's broken and this is what's changing here. I want to shift a little bit and talk about the article you wrote on the Adidas Kanye West um, oh. uh, situation from last October when it was really present. Now now we're looking at it. Adidas backpedal, they kicked him out. Yeah. Looking back on it now where we've had some room to breathe on that, what, what's your current take on on that situation, just overall, how these big brands are either being, are they being super quick to cancel? And listen, obviously, I think we could all agree that that Kanye had to go at that moment. But like, are we in a dangerous spot where it's too close to cancel culture or are brands finally waking up and saying, no, we're not dealing with this bullshit anymore? Listen, no one wants to be canceled. That's probably anyone's biggest fear. And at the same time, with a Kanye West, with other individuals, there's a track record where there's smoke, there's fire. And so an Adidas... I've also written really pieces about them on how they've actually done a lot of great work in diversity, equity, inclusion. So there's number one lesson, like 
we're all going to make mistakes in this journey, right? Mm -hmm. And so just because you've made progress doesn't mean you'll make a mistake. But I think secondly, they just didn't act quickly enough in that situation where there was enough of a pattern to actually say, this person no longer matches our values. And then the third thing, Adam, I always say our our employees are forgotten consumers. Let me say that again. Our employees are forgotten consumers. Why not go to your employees and tell them what's happening and and not not wait for them to see a press release on what you're going to do? And I see brands do this over and over again. Like use your employees as advocates. Let them know what's happening and what you're thinking about. And one of the things I'm sure you saw, Adam, at that time, a LinkedIn post that went viral from an Adidas employee who was like, I don't know if I can work here anymore because the company has said nothing to us about this. Communication. Absolutely. Because companies are so... They, they, they don't want to say the wrong thing. And and what you're doing is by not saying anything, you're actually creating more problems. Absolutely. Right. Have a point of view because everything, everybody's so litigious these days. Everyone is so on with social media. Somebody says something in a boardroom, it's tweeted out three seconds later when they think it's a, a, a private conversation. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about, I mean, you talk about it too, communicating in shitty situations. Yes. And talk about times when you've been in situations where, listen, bad, bad news is part of recruiting. Bad news is part of what we do. Bad news is part of leadership. You have to be able to, a, deliver bad news, be cool in difficult situations, all these pieces too. You know, what would you say the difference is between how you might have handled and reacted early in your career to where you are now with the experience and knowledge? Show up with kindness and compassion and just be really straightforward. Don't put off bad news. Just don't put it off. Don't ghost people. Don't, don't think by being silent, it's okay because your silence is a response. And so just go into those hard conversations because just think about, I always think about, wouldn't I just want Adam to tell me the truth? Why hasn't he called me back? Radical candor. Just just what, why, why? And so just have those hard conversations because sometimes I think some of the hardest conversations I've had in my career have actually turned into really great relationships and friendships because we had that honesty and we had that respect for each other. And I'm not here to tell my story because everyone knows it. The hardest yeah. conversation, one of the hardest conversations Gary Vee ever had in his career, he said, was, was with me because yeah. that was a moment that he, as a leader, broke through that radical candor block that he had. Yeah. And we had a real talk. And that real talk opened up into talking about my strengths and my weaknesses yes. and pointing me in the right direction. And you just think about it from a leadership perspective, you know, that's, that's really what it's all about. So let's talk about the book for a little bit. And the, and the one question sure. I always ask authors is, what did you learn about yourself from the process of writing the book? The process, not the content, the process. The process. Rejection is redirection. That's what I learned. I wrote this book four years ago. It was really difficult to get it published. People said to me, come back to me when, you, when you've written a book like Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah, there's, a lot of, Sandberg. Yeah, there's a lot of people <laughs> Let's like pause on that for a second, right? Like, wait Sandberg. A I don't know what that means. Write a book that's more... I don't know, lean in, be the boss. And my book was really about my expertise. That's not the book. There's stories in there, of course. I love storytelling, storytelling. But that was really interesting feedback. I. But were they saying that from a marketing perspective? Let let me just ask you, were they saying that because like, hey, listen, this is what you need to sell the book versus the actual content in it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because obviously this is a a business. Yeah, yep. So sell, how to sell the book. There's a lot of people who look like you writing books like this. Hmm. I don't know if other authors get that. Maybe they do. I also got feedback. Go ahead, Adam. So what was the, red- what was the re- redirection that you took? The redirection I took was I had my friend Lan Fan, who founded Community of Seven. She's amazing. Follow her on LinkedIn. But she said to me, 
keep building community and conversation. You enjoy that so much. Work on the podcast. The book deal is going to come. And Adam, what I learned in the process was actually, I now have a community who will buy the book. They trust me. I put out so much content, right? So if I had published it four years ago, people would have been like, okay, she seems interesting, but I don't really know. Who are you? And so that's when it's like, I've just kind of the process was every time I was rejected, I was being redirected to something else. So all the publishers that said no, I finally, the reason I got the deal with Wiley was, again, they heard the podcast and they said, D has a book deal. D, would you introduce us to Mita? She seems really interesting. We'd like to see if she'd like to write a book with us. Well, let's let's talk about the let's talk about the podcast. Where did it come from? Was it something you always wanted to do? You kind of scared of going on the mic? Yeah. So I've known D again, maybe similar to you. I measure things in my kids' years. So my daughter's mm-hmm. eight. I know I met D. I've known her for six, seven years now, right? I met her right when I came back from leave. And she was a coach to me, a coach to my team. I hired her to do a bunch of things. And, you know, over the years, Adam, we would just exchange all these audio messages about all the shit we were experiencing Mm -hmm. in corporate America with clients. And then it was during the pandemic right before we were with a bunch of girlfriends. And they said, you should turn this into a podcast. You should call it Brown Table Talk. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the pandemic happens. And you just start reevaluating all these things. And I thought to myself, there's really nothing like this in the marketplace. And Rich Mm -hmm. Cardona, who's also a good friend of yours, who he and his team helped produce our podcast. One of the things he said to us when we approached him was, go and see who's your competition. Is there actually a need for this? And I was like, yeah, I don't see anyone having conversations like this. And so that's where it was really born because I love storytelling. I'm not someone who thought I'd ever be a podcaster. But I love telling stories and I love bringing our conversations to life. And I know you can upskill yourself on anything, but the technicalities of a podcast was not one of them. And so we had have Rich and team helping us with that part. Well, I mean, that goes back to outsourcing, right? Like yes. you, you think about it, I'd rather spend my time on the content and the guests yes. of the show and outsource the production of it. And that's you know something else I talk about, yeah. too. And the beauty of podcasting is, and I talk about it's not for everybody. I, I applaud everybody who tries it. Right. Try it. Try it. If you have an itch, scratch it. Try the podcasting thing. But you know and I know how much work it takes to build a successful podcast. Yes. And kudos to you. You get picked up by 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 the LinkedIn um network. How has working with LinkedIn helped to to really throw gasoline on the fire and amplify your message? So we self-funded the first eight episodes, season one. And then I remember the day before it's going to launch, Rich is like, are you going to tell anyone you have a podcast? Like you're supposed to be promoting it now. And I was like, oh my God, people are going to listen to this. And the feedback was overwhelming. And then LinkedIn came knocking and we said, yes, we want to be partners with you. But you know what's really interesting, Adam? It's like with the podcast, I'm your guest. We're having these this you know one-way, two-way dialogue. With LinkedIn, there's so much capability to continue the conversation. Like people have listened to an episode, what to do when your name mm-hmm. repeatedly is mispronounced, what to do when you're mistaken for the other brown woman, what to do when oh, your God. boss hates you, like all of these things. And people want to keep talking about the episode and unpack it. And so that's where LinkedIn's been a great platform to continue the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And um, and I think that's the, the good side of LinkedIn. I mean, I could spend the whole episode. I mean, first of all, happy birthday to LinkedIn. We're recording this on the fifth day of May in the year 2023 and 20 yeah. years, 20 years of LinkedIn. Wow. Let's talk about, I mean, it's been quite, quite an evolution. I've been on LinkedIn since 2000, I want to say 10, 11, right, right about when I met my wife, I was working at SiriusXM. Yeah. yeah okay. So I, I kind of like put my, my mindset on it. Um, and I remember LinkedIn and I was an OG. It's so funny when people are like, I've been on for three years. I'm an OG. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, 
And and I remember the roots of LinkedIn. I remember when it was a resume sharing platform, when it was a mm-hmm. job search yeah. platform. Yes. And it's just been incredible to see the evolution of it and the good, the bad and the ugly. Listen, every social media platform has their ugly side. And I'm not going to I want to be positive during this conversation. This isn't a soapbox moment. But I, I love the for me, it's the friends. It's a network. It's it's yeah. a network that I've turned into friends. The people that have taken online relationships offline. I, hang, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have met Kevin, my co-founder and director on my recruiting site, if it wasn't for LinkedIn. Kevin lives in Seattle. There's no way we would have met from mm-hmm. LinkedIn. Awesome. What, what, is, what is that like warm, fuzzy, good feelings you get about LinkedIn? Let's give LinkedIn a little love today on LinkedIn's birthday. I, my friend Callie Schweitzer, who works there, says this all the time. It's a platform of generosity. I don't find as many mean trolls on LinkedIn. I mean, every platform has it. Well, you could also manage your feed and kick them off. You know what I mean? Like I've been doing that a lot in the last year. Like be more positive. Right. I think there's just wouldn't have been connected to you. I've been following you and your content for some time in your podcast and was delighted when I asked if I could be on your podcast and you said yes. I was like, why haven't we done this yet? I mean, it's a no brainer. I was like, let's go. But I wouldn't have met Rich through, Mm -hmm. you know, LinkedIn if I hadn't LinkedIn. So yeah. And I just think particularly when we talk about how do you let's get back to it like how do you build relationships with people from different communities linkedin's an amazing way to do that it's a global platform you can be meeting people you know however much time you have you can really be meeting people and investing in relationships i mean i went to, l- last summer i got booked for two speaking gigs in in london and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for linkedin i wouldn't have yeah. gone across the pond to have those yeah. chats that that wouldn't happen without building a professional network and building your brand and it enables people who are not we're not celebrities Right. I mean, yes. there's quasi influencers on LinkedIn that think they are, but they're really not anywhere else. Absolutely. But it gives you an opportunity to build your brand and, and have a voice and and build that platform. Because I think a lot of people have a lot to say. And they do indeed. And I also think it's pretty cool when, you know, it's like the whole LinkedIn, the same Facebook kind of movement. I'm like, please. I'm like, business is personal. People do business with Absolutely. people. People connect with people. Yes. Now, yes, do some people overshare? Of course, that's human nature. Do some people overshare for the algorithm? Of course, we're not going to get into that. But when you're relatable, when you talk about like your life and like, especially during the pandemic, like our Mm -hmm. lives and our careers have now melded together. Absolutely. Right. Before the pandemic, we we had a pretty good church and state. We still talked about work-life balance. How do you talk to people and coach them through having that work-life balance and being able to still show up for work and give their best, but, but still have the time and energy for their family. And if someone, let's be true. I also think, side note, I'm going on a rant here. There is a bias. Sometimes we talk about some people don't have families. Some people don't have kids by choice and we shouldn't put them in a box. They should have the same rights mm-hmm. as people who have kids and pets and all that kind of crap. But like, how do you, I know it's kind of long-winded here, but like talk about work-life inclusion and harmony. I like to use the word harmony. Yeah, I think it's work-life integration. I work remotely. I travel for work. But you have to set boundaries for yourself. I think too many of us treat ourselves like we're an Uber app, constantly on demand. We've been My raised God. in this in this culture, right? It's like <laughs> consumer. On, I get what I want when I want it, right? It's really hard in this environment raising Sound children. Like Five year old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but like we can't treat ourselves like that. And so then taking time to rest, recharge, reconnect. I love to write. I have no hobbies, Adam. I don't bake. I don't ski. I don't paddleboard. I love to write. I have my family, friends, and I love to write. I have my job. Awesome. And so that actually fills me up. And so you have to think about the things that you've got. You have to recharge. You can't show up for work and show up for others if you haven't invested in yourself. It's just not possible. It's hard. Do you ever find yourself spread too thin? That's where I'm kind of at lately. I do. I want to open up I about do. it. And I've just been trying to say no more. 
right? Don't turn my no into a yes. I loved when I reached out to somebody recently. I asked her for help in spreading awareness for my book. And she wrote me back the most lovely note and said, I really want to help you, but I'm trying to say no more often. Can you reach back out to me the end of summer? And I was like, I'm so glad you said no. Thank you for saying no. Like we have to, I'm not going to then try to get her to turn it into a yes. She's like, I want to help you, but get back to me in August. I'm like, I love that. When I reached out to you about coming on your podcast, I said, you know, what works for your schedule, right? Like helping people create boundaries because oftentimes, Adam, I've said no and people get angry. They get angry. I, I, they were like, you know, I wrote to somebody reached out and wanted me to meet somebody. And I said, thank you so much. I actually don't have time now, but maybe if you get back to me in a few months, I'll make the time. You should have seen the note I got back. I was like, wow. And then I realized this person must have issues. And like I say, hurt people, hurt people. It was a journal entry note. I can't believe you won't take this meeting. I thought you were about lifting women up. And I'm like, oh my God. So I was like, you know what? I'm just not, this doesn't, I'm just not going to respond to that. So, yeah, I mean, it's also important to realize, too, in the same breath, too, like everyone has different agendas. Everyone has different yes. timelines. And I think it's being respectful of that. And it comes down to patient, polite. I, I, I have my three P's on connecting. It's patient, okay. polite, persistence. Oh, I like that. Patient, polite, persistent. Right. I'm going to be persistent because I, I feel like you only get something in this world if you ask for it and mm-hmm. if you follow up. The people who don't get things in life, it's because you're not asking yeah. or you're not asking yes. in the right way and, and sharing value on both sides of it. So I want to double back to the book for a second here. And the second question I always ask authors, what do you want folks to walk away from after reading it? There are a lot of great books about DEI out there. And I wrote this book because there's a lot of myths we hold on to that actually do a lot of damage in this work. And so I want people to think about what are some of the things you've held on to that are actually holding you back from building a more inclusive culture? And it's for anyone who wants to make a change starting tomorrow. I tried to write it in a way that I would receive it with really storytelling and really practical tips on how we can, I say, show up and be better and do better at work tomorrow. I love that. What advice would you give to non-managers out there to influence their managers to make the workplace more inclusive, right? Like it's not just, hey, speak up, but like some tactical tips. Ask questions, offer advice and support. Give you an example. I know we have an opening on our team. Do you need some help with recruiting? Should we, uh, I know Adam who has a a search firm, like should we get outside help? How are we going to create a diverse slate for this role? We always seem to use the same agency. Have we thought about looking at other agencies that we could bring in, Hmm. right? Like just think about, I, I can work with pretty much anybody and look at your day and tell you the ways in which you can interrupt bias and just think differently. You know, if someone makes a, a joke about me in the hallway, are you going to listen to that joke, an inappropriate joke? Or are you going to say, yeah, I just want to talk to you about that joke. I, I don't think it was appropriate, right? Going back to pregnancy, how many is pregnant? No, Mita might have just gained weight. And you know what? She's ready to tell you. When she's ready to tell you, she'll tell you she's Respected. pregnant. So like, actually, that's really not helpful. And let's wait for her to share the news. So there are so many ways in which you can be showing up. I mean, listen, we spend way too much time at work. Why wouldn't we mm-hmm. want to protect the cultures we're building? We're all invested in it. Take ownership. Right? Take, take ownership. Yeah. And that's another big one, too. I think that a lot of folks always like default to, no, no, leaders, senior leadership. It has to come from the top. And I agree yeah. with that, too. But, yes. but culture is within, cultures all within the us. ranks, cultures yes. within that. Um, I want to end the show on some, on some positivity here. So what is giving you the most positivity, ray of sunshine in the world of diversity and inclusion? Like, let's give a shout out to somebody, some practice, some organization who's really making a difference out there. Let's send some love. 
I'm obsessed with Sephora. I spend too much money. Sephora, stop taking my money. But Sephora, wow, they've been on a journey for the last 10 years. I'm really impressed with what they're doing, not just from a workforce perspective, but how their brands and products are showing up, how they're showing up for the industry. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. So look up Sephora, you all. And then I would say it, I'm just really excited, Adam, for all of our children. I think they're going to experience a different workplace than we did. Hopefully. I hope so. I, hope so. I, I, really, I really hope so. And again, to all the parents out there, like, you are shaping them and please just be mindful of mm-hmm. how you talk, what you say, how you react, you know, what content they consume, what they're seeing out there because you're molding them and you're shaping them. So let's bring it home, Amita. Um, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every day of your life? Ooh. Be the best version of me. That's what, that's what I'm trying to lead my life. I can't be the best version of Adam. I'm not Adam can't be the best version of Sally or whoever. That's a, just like working on being the best version of myself. I try to be the best version of Rich Cardona every single day. <laughs> my, my shout out to Rich. I love you, man. I mean, last but not least, you look back on your life and your career and you look back to those moments when you're in high school and the bullies pulling mm-hmm. your hair and lighting it on fire and you're trying to find yourself and your self-worth and your confidence. And you had to dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity to pull you up. And today you sit here as a change maker, a difference maker, somebody who's actually doing the good work and helping move the needle. What keeps you focused? What is your lighthouse? Mita Malik, what is your North Star in life? My family, my children, and my community. I love it. Mita, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I want everyone to pre-order Mita's book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Pre-order on Amazon. I'm not going to put that giant URL. I will put that giant URL in the <laughs> show notes Thank so you can you. check it out right afterwards. I'm not going to read some crazy uh, LinkedIn no, uh, link stream please here. Don't. And um, folks who connect with you on LinkedIn, where else could they find you? LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm off Twitter. I have a defunct TikTok channel. So there we go. Can't get into TikTok. I yeah. tried. <laughs> My daughter kills it. Mita, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you and your time. And everyone check out the Brown Table. Um, Jeez, the, 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 (laughs) tell us the name of your podcast. I'm stuttering here. No, please go check out Brown Table Talk with my co-host DC Marshall and myself. Yes, Brown Table Talk. You you can find it on LinkedIn Audio, probably. You can find it on where all your favorite podcasts platforms stream everyone out there i want to thank you so much for spending time 44 minutes and 29 seconds with me tonight i hope you found it valuable fun this is what it's all about definitely check out her show it's all about collaboration over competition plenty of ears for everybody it's about spreading the good word if this show resonated with you please spread it sharing means caring you know where to find out more at the podcast.com follow us on all the social media channels remember look out for one one another take care of each other and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast take care everybody Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>